It was the 90s, hair had a tough time in general. listening to Replaying Favorites. It's the show where friends show each other their seasonal favorite films. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. I do not have a seasonal film for next time, but please go on. There aren't a lot of Thanksgiving movies, but there is Home for the Holidays, a film about Holly Hunter going home for Thanksgiving. Brie, what's your experience with Home for the Holidays? I was aware that Claire Danes was in it, and I feel good about that. I don't want to oversell the level of involvement that Claire Danes has. If you're expecting her to be a co-star, she's more of a bit player. Don't look out for her to keep popping up. Oh, is Jordan Catalano there? He's definitely not. But Mm. you'll be happy to know, or at least I am happy to know because I get to watch this performance again, that Holly Hunter gets to spar with and goddamn Bancroft. And the two of them really kill it. All right. I am into that. Also, another returning favorite, Charles Durning is going to show up. Shut up. Okay, so so just to clarify, (laughs) I think this is now, well, I guess this is our third Holly Hunter movie. But aside from her, whom we love and we love her showing up all the time, We now have Ian Holm and Charles Durning as the most replayed men on Replaying Favorites, and they were also both in our first two movies. That's so fucking weird. I think that this performance will give more reasoning behind why you have trouble picking Charles Durning out of a lineup, because he's a real different actor in each movie he does. I mean, he's always impersonating Brian Dennehy. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well... I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this movie after the break. I won't spoil any more for you. Let's just get to that drumbeat. And we're back having watched Home for the Holidays, the 1995 film directed by Jodie Foster, starring Holly Hunter, Robert Downey Jr., Anne Bancroft, Charles Durning, Dylan McDermott, Geraldine Chaplin, Steve Gutenberg, and Claire Danes, among others. It is the story of Clyde, as she is known by her family, visiting said family for Thanksgiving, and the many dysfunctions she encounters there. Her daughter is about to lose her virginity. Her mother is an overbearing nightmare. Her father is elsewhere. Her relationship with her sister is tense. Her relationship with her brother is frantic. And there's maybe a romantic interest for some reason. We'll talk about all of it and Aunt Gladdie. But first, Brie, what'd you think? I loved Aunt Gladdie. (laughs) As much as I hated the romantic subplot. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. I will say, I texted you earlier that I had a selective forgetting about this film. I had entirely blocked out that Dylan McDermott was present because I hated the romantic subplot just as much as you did. It's so much more of the movie than you think is possible that it's going to be. Like, when they were making out or whatever, there were still 20 minutes left, and I was like, how? But also, and more importantly, why? Let's maybe start with things that we do like before going down that little cul-de-sac. What did you find pleasurable about Home for the Holidays? Obviously, Holly Hunter's performance, she's really great and a good grounding for the movie. Similar with Bancroft and Durning, 
I really loved the actual dinner scene. I thought it showed like a lot of skill from Jodie Foster because there's so many overlapping conversations. You're always aware of what's happening, even if it's happening a little bit behind you. There's some great monologues there. Those were sort of the highlights for me. What about you? What do you love about this movie? I love a lot of the individual performances. I think that in particular, Anne Bancroft stands out to me every time I think of this movie because she is such a ball of frantic energy and so much of it is borderline unbearable especially early on but she in particular is really specific like the places where her eyes are focusing when she's saying things the little side business she's always doing i just find her to be such a compelling force of like every maternal thing good and bad that you could expect from going home for thanksgiving (laughs) all rolled up into one big old pile of stuffing yeah and i think you're right that jodie foster's direction is a big part of this she took this on as her second directorial Mm -hmm. choice after little man tate and she said that she did so because the script was essentially a mess and she liked the idea of trying to corral all of that mess into something and i think you see both sides of that in this like sometimes this is just a mess but sometimes it is like the dinner scene a really nicely controlled mess yeah and i think similarly there are some highlights and lowlights in terms of the writing like i think all the performances are really let me step back i think most of the performances are really strong (laughs) but you know like for instance and maybe we'll talk about this at the end there's that great monologue from charles derning And the writing is pretty clunky, but he's really selling it and the Mm. direction is really selling it. So like there for me were a lot of things fighting each other. I would give this one about a 60%. Yeah, there are parts of this that I sort of intentionally don't remember almost. This lives on in my memory because of the heights that it hits. And I am happy to gloss over some scenes that I'm like, what's going on here? It's also... A very 90s movie. Oh my god. When this movie opened with that song and I was like, is this fucking Rusted Root? And it was. It was the most 1995 thing that's ever occurred. Yeah. There are a few things here that are relics of the time. And that's a great way to transition to the beginning of this plot where our delightful Holly Hunter is restoring a painting and is having a real manic time of it. I forgot this opening scene i don't know where to begin i've just written what dot 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 what are her boundaries (laughs) why does she kiss her what is happening this is one of those mess in a bad way moments where i get that the intention is to start her off with a huge debacle that she lost her job and she made out with her boss for some reason and plenty of people that she likes seem to be also getting fired and like she has to just be shot out of a cannon from that into an unstable family situation Mm -hmm. but it is too chaotic it's not like something bad happened it's like she's having an episode yeah absolutely and it's compounded by the fact that again we are now in pandemic times where i'm like i don't like that she's got a sneeze getting on that plane like she infected (laughs) her whole family but to your point, it, it was just too much. And there were so many elements in this movie that were just a little bit too much. Like about 80% of the movie needed to be dialed back about 20%. The only thing that could have been more 1995, though, was Claire Danes doing her best Angela Chase in both of her scenes. Bless her heart. Love her so much. 
Sweet Claire Danes, I am glad that she was here. I think that she's a great counterpoint to Holly Hunter because they play really well off of each other. They felt believably like mother-daughter, but also the kind of mother-daughter that are like a little too close friends. Like I felt their relationship in a really specific way, and I think they both do an excellent job of establishing that. It does also show its time period by the fact that like, I'm going to guess my so-called life was already on the air when they released this because she's like fifth build or something. And she is literally in two scenes, one of which is her just on a phone. Yeah, she's not here a lot. It is funny that they (laughs) pitch this as a Claire Danes movie and they just get rid of her out the gate. She's really only there to, again, destabilize Holly Hunter with the information that her daughter is going to have sex and likes to let her know that. <laughs> and then to kind of help re-stabilize her, tell her to breathe, tell her she didn't lose her virginity, and for some very good reasons that I'm just thinking about this now as I'm saying it, I feel like should have been a warning to Clyde, but was not taken up by the movie as like, no, don't date the weird, creepy guy who's way too familiar with you and your body. Yeah, the entirely wordless performance of the boy who she is not sleeping with (laughs) does effectively establish him as the worst possible choice for having sex with at any given point. And there's no support given by Holly Hunter to Claire Danes in that scene. She's not like, oh, well, do you feel unsafe at his family's Thanksgiving? Would you like to come home? It's just like, well, see you in a couple days, honey. I don't think that this movie establishes Clyde as the mother of the year say she really gives no advice at any point in time to claire danes but also doesn't take the experience of claire danes to heart in proceeding with her own life either i think she largely does not comment on it she is given information but she has nothing to add in return none like there's no scripted responses to any of the momentous things happening in her daughter's life no No interest. Part of this was fun to watch as like a time capsule because the other thing that is totally there is when that very small time period before cell phones, when they had the phone on the plane and you could just like listen (laughs) to everyone making phone calls on the plane. We're not really making it as a country, but if we ever allow people to make phone calls on planes again, that's how I will know that we will have completely collapsed. Oh, there's a lot of airport business here. So much airporting. It feels very dated to see how airports were. Even things like, and we're jumping to the very, very end, but the last shot is Holly Hunter on a plane with like five people on it. I have to say that was one of the most unrealistic parts of the whole movie. No (laughs) one else was going home after Thanksgiving. Her plane on the way out was very crowded. It made no sense. That is such a persnickety point, but... My guess is that the city of Chicago gave them nice tax breaks to film so much of the movie in (laughs) O'Hare. That's the only thing I got. So this movie has a mess of a beginning, but once the plane lands and she is in the arms of her parents, things really take off. Let's just get to how Holly Hunter interacts with Anne Bancroft and Charles Durning, two of the greatest actors who I love endlessly. And Bancroft really sold the role because I almost screamed with both my voice and my body when she was just leaning over her daughter with that cigarette from the back seat. <laughs> it was so specific and so horrible. And I felt every primal scream to be away that 
one has ever felt with one's family. And we've all been through it. I think that's what this movie gets right is that like, everyone has been through this at some point in their life. And you go from being the kids who don't understand what's going on at Thanksgiving to the younger people in the family who just want to get away to being the older people in the family who just want to grab everybody close. And that's what I think the movie really gets right. Yeah, the sense of familiarity amongst the relationships is really sold. You can feel, like you said, the leaning close is not just physical, but like emotional. And Bancroft is close to Holly Hunter. She's up in her business. She is in her face. And there is never a sense that she feels the least bit of shame about that. I think my favorite moment, it's also one of the weirdest ones, is when they get home and she starts reciting a Dear Abby letter while undressing. See, I found that kind of unsettling. There was kind of an unsettling Better Off Dead vibe where a lot of these characters seemed really disaffected from their own lives and just kind of like sort of keeping it together and going through the motions, but like have a lot in the background that's not going great. Which I think in some ways is emblematic of, at least when I go home for Thanksgiving, I know there's that attempt to like keep it on the surface and not let anyone dig too deep. And once that bubble bursts, then the rest of this movie happens. It was effective for me, but I hear the point. It was a fascinating little moment but it made me kind of sad. There were a lot of things in this movie that made me a little bit sad for the people involved because all of them seem to be vaguely miserable in different ways. Yeah, you do get the sense that almost every character has some kind of bedrock melancholy upon which everything is built. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. It works especially well for Anne Bancroft's character simply because she is kind of a pain in the ass when you first meet her and so immediately giving her that like underlying sadness that like thanksgiving means a lot to her because she's otherwise pretty dissatisfied at least gives you a little like okay i hate that she's like this but i also understand it yeah i don't know if everyone needed that same motivation but it works for her yeah I guess I also didn't understand why she was so dissatisfied because it seems like her husband just super loves her. This is also our second very Randy Charles Durning movie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Bless him. Randy for a woman in a red wig. He has a type. No, he does have a type. I have to say to redeem Anne Bancroft's mom in this, I do love that fuchsia coat and she was right to bring it to the airport. (laughs) Yeah, that fuchsia coat. While portrayed as ghastly in the film is something that I could see anyone in Brooklyn wearing. Absolutely. It's totally back in style. I mean, there is that horrible cloying thing where your mom just knows you so goddamn well. And like, you kind of appreciate it in this like little kernel of your heart. But for the most part, you just want to like reject it and run away because it's like so annoying that someone would know you that well. Yeah, because this is again... The 90s before she could text her mom and be like, bring a coat. So she had the coat ready to fire. Yep. And she was correct. There were so many moments of profound sadness for me in this. Like Charles Durning going through all that effort to get like a tiny finger full of pie. Just give the man a pie. Fuck. Can't we just all have pie? Like, I just feel like that's the difference between the 1990s and today is like today you just be like, We bought an extra pie for dad because Jesus Christ, why should he have to go through that? I know. I hated the number of times that Anne Bancroft had to call him tubby or comment on his weight. And I felt bad 
for not Charles Durning's character, but for Charles Durning the man that he had to sit through that, like, take after take. Yeah. And then you have the other part of the 90s uh, where Joanne is just, like, on her Stairmaster, teaching her child bad body image things at the end of the movie. Again, this is just, like, a perfect encapsulation of 1995. Yeah. And since we've talked about the other siblings, we should get to... The big panic of 1995, Robert Downey Jr. is gay. Well, his character. I was really torn between being very glad that they didn't make him, like, full swish and being upset that they decided on world's most obnoxious man. Like, Yeah, I don't think the script understands what a goddamn terror this character is. Thank you! He takes multiple naked or half-closed pictures of his adult sister, and it's really gross. Like, I was actually very upset by it. And the reason they get away with it is because he's the gay one, and I'm like, that's not an excuse. Yeah, there are behaviors throughout that I find deeply troubling. I do know that they allowed him to improvise a lot on the set, and he was given sort of free reign. Also, he has publicly stated that he was fully using heroin throughout the making of this film, which I think explains some of his, like, in comparison to Anne Bancroft's laser focus eyeline, I don't know what Robert Downey Jr. is looking at in some of these scenes. I'm glad that you had the timeline on that because I didn't want to cast any aspersions, but obviously we all know that he had a lot of substance abuse problems. This was a almost charmless performance from him. Like, I mean, you see this versus, like, Heart and Souls, which is just a couple years earlier. Like, Robert Downey Jr. has to work really hard to be super obnoxious. Like, even his motor mouth thing that he does in a lot of movies has a lot of charm to it. If I could have recast anyone in this movie, it would have been him. It pains me to say it, but I absolutely agree. I understand the version of Robert Downey Jr. that Jodie Foster wanted to cast, and I feel very bad for her that someone else showed up to set and she had to do her best with that. But it is a problem. It's also not helped by the movie's core decision to make a bait and switch about whether or not this is the brother's new boyfriend in Dylan McDermott. It wound up being because they wanted to have McDermott play straight, but possibly be gay. They also kind of made the same decision for Robert Downey Jr. And I was just like, obviously, you can be gay in a myriad of different ways. But like, Nothing about his performance to me other than him talking to his husband, which I did think was a sweet scene, read as this is a non-straight man. Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in the portrayal of queerness in this film. On the one hand, we get to see a gay marriage, which is a big thing. But on the other hand, we don't get to see, for the most part, any gay romance. The choice to have him not bring home a date is great for a bait and switch, but it means we don't have to see the impact of what it means for a gay person to be married. Right. My actual very last note is that I'm so horrified and sad that no one was there for Jack and Tommy's wedding. Like, none of his family were there. Yeah, and I think it's strange on a scripting level that he's so close with his sister and doesn't mention that to her. Like, it seems like she's the one who should have known. Absolutely. I think even his parents probably would have been open to it, considering like what we see later. Maybe, maybe not. But I also feel like he would have talked to his mom. Yeah, I actually think the most heartbreaking scene. I love that Charles Durning 
congratulates the husband on the phone. I think that's really sweet. Yes. But it breaks my heart that Anne Bancroft is so hurt that she wasn't invited to the wedding. Yeah. Like, she doesn't like to talk about the fact that he's gay, and that's clear from the beginning. But it still cuts her that she wasn't involved in something so momentous. And, like, she plays that so rough. I lose it when I watch that. Yeah, it's a very compelling scene. And it also is, like, one of the most realistic things that is portrayed in the movie of, like, you see a person who is, like, a product of their time, right? So, like, maybe they don't have the comfort level that we would have now of a kid coming out to them. But, like, you know your kid's gay. You know he has a long-term partner. And to think about what you must have done to not get the invite to the wedding is something that would haunt me for my entire life. Like, it would be just the most horrible thing. Yeah, and it's kind of sad that they don't really touch back on that. Like, I would have liked to have seen a little more of Robert Downey Jr. and Anne Bancroft kind of playing that out. She says you were always distant, and then they just don't really talk again. They kind of don't really talk in the movie. Yeah. He interacts with Clyde. He interacts with Joanne. He even interacts with his dad, but he rarely interacts with his mom. And yeah, I would have liked to have seen that explored more. Like, is there a history there where like he had tried to come out to her or something else and she had rejected, you know, like, what are they working through? Because she does make that one comment that seems so like, you know, loaded that it's bizarre that the movie doesn't pick up on it anywhere. Yeah, no, the rest of their interaction is to like cutesy giggle over the fact that Clyde and Dylan McDermott are going to get together, which like, again, we've talked about the fact that Dylan McDermott is there. We haven't talked about the fact that he's intended to be a fake love interest for the brother and a real love interest for the sister. I hate it. Every single note in my notes is just stop. No. He was so overly familiar with everyone in the family. I thought for a long time that he was Robert Downey Jr.'s husband and I couldn't figure out why nobody knew him. It's also just like really cruel of Downey's character to not tell his sister like that his creepy ass business partner came to their Thanksgiving based on a picture of her. That's so creepy. I agree that literally every note of it is wrong. It also just distracts from this being a family drama. You're right that he's a total outsider and his presence only detracts from all the things that I actually care about. The last thing Holly Hunter wants in this moment is like a romantic entanglement. She has quite a bit going on with her family. But he's also like going through their refrigerator and touching everyone. Like, I know Joanne's a bigot, but she's very right when she shows up and she's like, who's this fucking asshole? Because why is he so familiar with them? Oh, he was in their house and just acting like he belonged there and he didn't. It was so creepy to me and I don't know why. It was as wrong as putting M&Ms on a key lime pie, which Aunt Gladdy does. Let's talk about Aunt Gladdy. So I went down a few wiki rabbit holes, and Geraldine Chaplin, who plays Aunt Gladdy, is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin, and she also starred in Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr. in 1992, I think. So they would have actually known each other on the set. Yeah. Again, this is one of those performances where some things are played for comedy that I found so profoundly sad that it was kind of hard to come back from. Like, I'm going to be thinking about that monologue that she gave that no one reacted to for a long time. Yeah, I will give all of the credit in the world to Geraldine Chaplin, because this is a difficult character that 
she sinks every tooth into. Like, I couldn't pry my eyes away from her. Oh, if she's on screen, your eyes are on her. Like, absolutely. Because you have no idea what is going to come out of that lady's mouth. My only laugh out loud to that point is when she's singing, like, the Grace song. And she realizes she's too high. And so she just transposes it down, but takes a couple goes at it. Absolutely. One of the most brilliant things I've ever seen in a movie. She's so committed. Her undefeatable cheeriness in the face of things that are ghastly, which is like most of this film. I can't put into words the way it excites me when she stands up and is excited to say the most horrible thing that will ruin Thanksgiving. But does she? Because no one seems to react to the point that I read something where it said like, oh, maybe she does this every year. But I don't think so, because Robert Downey Jr. seems very interested in hearing what she's going to say. Yeah, I had the same, again, almost like the scene with Robert Downey Jr. and his mother, where you want to see what's next. They throw this in as sort of a vignette, but don't take the time to explore what does that mean for everyone sitting at the table other than being uncomfortable for the exact two minutes that it happens. Again, I think it was something that could have been explored in like another little half a scene where either this was a known issue or she's just like, you know, a person in the family that like is going to be there no matter what. So there's no point in dealing with it. I mean, I'm Irish. That's what we usually do. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I can see how some of this family, in some ways, Anne Bancroft in particular, would just not mention it. She seems pretty good at not mentioning things, but some acknowledgement, at least from other characters, that we are actively choosing to ignore this, or like like you said, other examples of times that we have to ignore Aunt Gladdy because she's prone to flights of oddity, which, I mean... It's clear that she is, but still, it feels like it should be a turning point, and then it isn't. And there were a couple of those moments that felt that way. I thought you were going to say Flights of Fancy, but the movie does let us know that it's not a Flight of Fancy because we see it in the final moments where they're doing the flashbacks. Like, we see him kiss Gladdy. And there's also the strange way that Charles Durning continues to be quite affectionate towards Gladdy in a way that could be seen as pity, but feels like something more, which is odd because he's so caring towards his wife. He couldn't be more in love with her. And then he's just like a little sweet on Gladdy still from one kiss decades ago. That feels wrong. And it felt to me like maybe that was tied into some of Bancroft's dissatisfaction, like getting back to that like Dear Abby monologue. But I want to say that I appreciate that the movie didn't try to tie a super messy family up into a super neat bow. But on the flip side of that, I think they also didn't do some of the work that I needed to like know if I was supposed to take these characters and their pain seriously or not, or like what that pain was attached to. Instead, they were just sort of like morose. Yeah, there isn't enough connective tissue. Like this movie is structured with little title cards between scenes and it does sometimes feel like we are watching perhaps slightly dissociated vignettes as opposed to using the title cards to actually flow us through the story yeah i think that's right and the screenplay is based on a short story by chris radant or perhaps radant who knows the screenplay is written by wd richter 
I'm not sure how the short story is structured and if that informed how choppy the movie is, but, you know, that's something for you, the listener, to perhaps research. If you really love this script uh, and want to do some more digging and then message me on Twitter, our Twitter is at Replaying Faves, our Instagram at Replaying Favorites. And if you like this podcast, then you can give it five stars and a rating on iTunes or wherever you happen to find it. Ugh. Love to see the master at work. It's so nicely done. Well done. <laughs> I learned from the best. <laughs> Let me awkwardly transition out from that to one of the other huge mistakes that the movie makes, which is casting David Strathern as like the loser that she does not want to date. I'm like, I'm so sorry. We're about to choose here between David Strathern and Dylan McDermott. The movie did not have my priorities straight. I can tell you that. Yeah, this is clearly before he became someone that we would cast in roles bigger than the sad man you went to high school with. Not true. He was already Whistler and Sneakers by this point. I was like, Holly Hunter, climb on Whistler and keep it moving. Like, what are we doing here? He does play that character so compellingly. Speaking of people who are built on a bedrock of melancholy... Every one of his lines is the worst thing I've ever heard. And he does deliver all of them as if he is about to march off directly into the grave. <laughs> or into the sun, one of the two. <laughs> He's going to shoot himself into the sun. And again, the degree to which I hated the idea that Dylan McDermott would be her love interest. I'm sorry, I'm going to call him Leo Fish because it does actually sound more ridiculous. <laughs> there was also just something like so disdainful about like, that working class guy who's just like making ends meet in Baltimore, like, screw you, girl, you're not so great. You kissed your boss right after he fired you. Yeah, the character is treated with immense amounts of disrespect. And I do get it that he seems a hair socially awkward. Have you met her brother? <laughs> exactly. Or her sister? We haven't even gotten to the sister, but please go on. In a house of this many misfits, I don't think that this particular character is setting the bar as low as they think they are. I know. That's all I'm saying is that, like, he seems responsible, he has his own truck, and he's willing to, like, make the effort on Thanksgiving. He's very nice to her. He's probably nicer to her than anyone else in this film. A million percent. I do appreciate, however, Foster casting someone this handsome for this sad sack of a role. It's not something you'd usually see. You'd see, like, you know, a character actor who always plays like a schlub. And it was nice that they cast, like, just a very classically handsome person to be a sadness monster. Yeah, but I'm with you. I would have taken that cup of eggnog into his truck with him and been like, drive toward the horizon, sir. Like, <laughs> Never go back, especially not when Leo Fish is in the house going through the refrigerator for the third time get out of there it's not your place you brought up the last member of the family who is about to make a big prissy entrance our third sibling joanne and her husband steve gutenberg <laughs> what's funny about steve gutenberg is that his career started out with like goofy leading men and then like got more and more like Maleficent as time went on. <laughs> like by the time he's on Veronica Mars, it's like, oh God, watch out for Steve Gutenberg. But also a special shout out to Cynthia Stevenson, who just nails Joanne. She's so good. She's really good. This is a character that is tough to like. And certainly I don't think by the end you like her, but you understand Joanne based on this performance. I think that especially seeing the rest of her family, you really get how someone like this could come out of that household. I've written, 
TBH, Joanne is kind of relatable, except for the fact that she's a bigot. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's always going to be with that big caveat. But like, you know, it's also the thing that her parents seem scruffy. Her two siblings, who are also scruffy, have also fucked off. So like, she's the one who's there taking care of daily needs, whatever else. And also her life seems so incredibly sad as well. Like, I just wish like, there was one example in this movie of someone who's just like kind of living a life that makes them happy. And I think Tommy Downey Jr.'s character comes the closest. But he is, of course, like being crushed by like 1990s homophobia. So he's not really getting out alive either. No, not great for him. I think maybe Aunt Gladdy is the only one who's happy. And that's because she doesn't understand what's going on all the time. <laughs> Do you feel like her level of happiness is what's brought her to a place where she's drinking wine at Thanksgiving and making love confessions to her sister's husband and caring for 210 plants. Do you feel like that's how she got to that place? Happiness? I'm just going to say that I don't think she realizes that she's unhappy. She's smiling. She's not examining. Oh, no, no, no. I think 30 years ago, she realized that she was unhappy and then put her brain in a box to, to hide the unhappiness from herself. Yeah, now she has 210 plants. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's from a place of health. I'll put it that way. No, I think the most crushing line in this film is Joanne steadfastly getting on the Stairmaster and saying, this is the only thing I do all day that I like. Absolutely. That oh. crushed me. It actually crushed my heart, especially because it came right after my second big laugh of the movie, which was, if I met you on the street, if you gave me your phone number, I'd just throw it away. Like... <laughs> That is also soul-crushingly sad, but it is also such a hard burn that I had to respect it. Joanne's been sitting on that one for a while. That yeah. is the peak of her, like, anger at her sister taking off and leaving her with all the responsibility. Poor Joanne. She is doing everything in her power to keep shit together. Jesus. And again, maybe this is a 1990s vibe versus, like, a now vibe, which is just like, you're doing too much. Nobody asked. And in fact, Anne Bancroft makes that point. She's like, she's your sister's like bringing her own turkey, even though I was like, don't. Like, that's on her. Anne Bancroft and Holly Hunter both try to express that, that like, that, yeah, it is a prison of her own making. That's what it is, is that all of these characters, except for Tommy, I think, have made prisons for themselves to exist in. Also, just, I didn't realize that I just sort of quoted my so-called life there. So I guess I do have Claire Dance on the brain. But yeah, they've made their own shackles and like that sucks and i think that's the intention behind the leo fish character because he talks to her about how you know she doesn't need to be afraid and she could take chances and i'm like i understand that theme but i am going to go on a date with a stranger who showed up to thanksgiving is the worst possible way to get that message across does he not have a family to go to unclear I didn't like that his friend showed him a picture of his sister and he was like, I will abandon my entire family to come to your Thanksgiving and pretend to be gay for half the day. I guess kind <laughs> of. I mean, he does say at some point early on, am I not like making the right moves with you or something? Yeah, I think the scripting problem of if we knew anything about him as a human being, then we would learn that he is not married to Tommy. And so... We can't get any character detail. And then once we realize that he is actually flirting with Clyde, 
all it becomes is him saying, you should be open to me flirting with you and her being like, I don't think that is the case. Yeah, I have a note late where he says, give me the goddamn time of day. And I've written, no, you gross old rag. Go away. She is correct. Followed by, no, I hate him. I really did not respond to the Dylan McDermott character. (laughs) The movie takes this position that she's so closed off and I can't believe you wouldn't go for him. And she's so firmly in the right at every moment. Like, I never wanted him to be anywhere within several yards of this house. When she was standing in the door to her childhood bedroom and he was like trying to get in, I was literally chanting, close the door at the screen. Get out of their house, you creep. I mean, there is a darker version of this movie where he is a killer. (laughs) He does try to force someone in a closed restaurant to serve him, which is also deeply unappealing. Thank you. So, you know, we don't always agree on the movies, but the way that I know that we are still inherently on the same wavelength is (laughs) that I thought his worst behavior was bothering that young man who's working on Thanksgiving, and he thought he was the hero in that situation, and he was not. Yeah, he's like, listen, I'm trying to coerce a woman into sleeping with me, so if you could make me some coffee, even though you are clearly mopping a floor and telling me to leave, like, buddy. At, like, 9 p.m. on Thanksgiving night, do you think that that young lad had a good day? Fuck you, sir. Calm the fuck down and get on a plane by yourself to where it is, ever it is that you come from. When I saw that lamp come down the aisle of that airplane, (laughs) my soul left my body. I think my soul left my body when Holly Hunter pulled food out from between Dylan McDermott's teeth in a romantic scene while her brother slept next to them. I don't know what you're talking about because it appears... That like Aunt Gladdy, I dissociated from my own brain for at least that amount of time. I know from context clues when you're talking about, but I don't want to talk about that item further. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, let's move right the fuck along because it was easily the worst thing ever committed to film. God. I've also written after she closed the door on him. I'm not sure I've ever been so relieved to have two romantic leads in a movie not have sex. Oh, God. Can you imagine? I've also written, and I can't remember why now, he doesn't want pictures because he's going to murder you and steal your body. I couldn't tell you what that's in reference to, but it could be right. You know what? Let's stick with your instinct to keep it moving. What else do you want to talk about? Oh, God. I mean, dinner went so badly. We should get back to Joanne's version of how badly dinner went, because she really gets the short end of the stick in this. That's not the expression. That's the expression, short end of the stick. Does a stick have a short end? I think it's when you're drawing straws and you get the short one. Let us know. We're on Twitter. I already did that. Oh, I know. (laughs) 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 This is the level of jokes that we're reduced to. I would say that she more gets the turkey in the tits. Oh, my God. This was kind of unnecessarily mean to poor Joanne. Like, they go the extra mile of not just throwing a turkey carcass at her, but then emptying its contents over her head. (sighs) On the one hand, she is a ridiculous bigot to her brother, which is unforgivable. On the other hand, why do they stay at the Thanksgiving? Is it not time to go home after you have been beturkeyed? Like, take your family 
and head home with whatever remaining shred of dignity you have. What are we doing? If they were going to do it, it should have come later as a sort of comeuppance because she later outs her brother to the family in an extremely vindictive way and then gets to storm off in a sort of righteous fashion. I would rather that she did something shitty and then got turkeyed in response. Yeah. Or if we knew that that was the kind of thing she'd done in the past, because we know that the other two siblings don't really like her and we think that she's anal and uptight, but we don't really know that she's like insidious because like it's one thing in 1995 to be like uncomfortable because somebody's gay. It's another thing to be like, but what does it mean for me in the town to like have everybody know that my brother has gotten married to another man? Like that's the shit that's like very, very bad. But like, it did come too early. She should have been turkeyed in revenge. And I get that they're trying to, like, push her to her limit so that she is filled with rage about other things and then just has to explode. But in a movie that's about family tension, it should have just come from the siblings all needling each other or the parents needling her. There's so much family drama that we didn't need the turkey ex machina to make it happen she was ready to explode (laughs) and also like if you're already on that knife edge of like wanting to vindictively out your brother tommy being so obnoxious would have made that happen without the turkey turkey ex machina i'm gonna think about that one for a while well then yeah and he is very obnoxious to her he is justified because she is a bigot as we have said several times but like he does not come off smelling like roses he is a terror throughout this film jesus christ ratchet it down a notch having now read that downey jr was allowed to do a lot of his lines on the fly i just wonder how much of that was foster not ratcheting him in like i said it's the most uncharismatic performance i've ever seen him give and especially when i am so primed to see him as a sympathetic character i was just like i'm Because it's also just so annoying to bring someone home for your sister and not tell her. Like, I know we talked about this already, but God, that's so obnoxious. And again, it's really counter to the thing that the movie is trying to establish, that they are so close and tell each other everything. It's really in opposition to Holly Hunter calling and spilling her guts to him specifically that she got fired and made out with her boss and explained all of this incredibly personal stuff that he then shares with the rest of the family. Like, why is that sharing not going both ways? Yeah, and why would he set her up in this way? I mean, I'm really not for, like, a family prankster, full stop. But it's so repellent. And like I said, I think Foster was probably cognizant not to make him, like, a gay stereotype. But instead, they just made him, like, very obnoxious, which, like, also isn't super appealing, to be honest, (laughs) in terms of representation. Yeah, I think that there is a balance to be had with, like, impish energy that he just spilled too far over the line. Yeah, I agree. Which is a disappointment. I mean, his hair is also tragic. <laughs> Listen, the only good thing about Leo Fish is that he's got a nice head of hair. Everything else is a problem. Before we move to the aftermath of the turkeying, another special shout out to Cynthia Stevenson, who it's very clear, had at least like eight takes with all that turkey over her because in various takes, her bangs look fine. And in other takes, they're like creased to the front of her forehead. That actor, she went through a lot that day. And I think she's truly doing remarkable work in a totally thankless role. 
She had to be covered in various cakes of grease and baking soda all over her body in that terrible green dress that she then has to defend. (laughs) That was another totally crushing line. I think, weirdly, they wrote best for Joanne because she says when Holly Hunter offers her uh, just a clean outfit, she's like, I know you'd never be caught dead in this, but like, I really love this. And it's like, Oh, babe, you are so alienated from your peers that, like, you don't even know that, like, your sister might try to be nice to you. Yeah, you can see that she's just so ready for the attack at every moment, especially because I imagine... She is an attacker? And she's used to interacting with Tommy. Yeah, Yeah, they're at each other's throats. So when help is at the ready, she just can't even experience it as a kindness. It's startlingly sad. There's something kind of interesting about seeing a woman who, again, for the 18th time here, is a bigot, but that she has always been on the outs versus like the team of her brother and sister who seem like they get along better and just understand each other. And there's that actually kind of nice moment at the end where you see her and Steve Gutenberg just like having a lovely family moment in their own home. And it's like, oh, I mean, we always talk about like, blended and chosen families and like she doesn't feel like she belongs in her family and like she's chosen a different family and like she i think only goes to the thanksgiving out of obligation like she feels a duty to take care of her parents but i don't think she feels like she belongs in that set yeah which is a not at all subtle parallel to how gay people experience thanksgiving the world over absolutely um Well, not the world over, because it's only celebrated in the United States. And I guess Canada has a Thanksgiving. So North America over. Uh, (laughs) I mean, aside from Mexico, but go on. Okay, so two countries might know what we're talking about. So two thirds of North America, go on. (laughs) Everyone, welcome to the Geography Podcast, Replaying Favorites. You can find us on Twitter at... (laughs) (laughs) I'm not mad at it. Do the whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. Go on. (laughs) Um... I mean, I have nothing further to add except that, like, of course the two of them could find something to relate about if they weren't polar opposites. I'm sure a lot of Thanksgivings in the Trump era had this times 100, so. I think what's nice about having this discussion is that I didn't particularly enjoy this movie. I don't think it's something I would watch again. But there is writing and there are performances and direction here that are very specific and feel very true. And like, you get glimpses of it throughout. Like, I think everybody gets at least one turn on like the truth mobile. And it's really nice because even Robert Downey Jr., who I do think is way over the top here, like gets that nice moment on the phone with his husband. And it's lovely. I think that there was a super tremendous movie here. Like the cast is firing on all cylinders. But I think it needed 30% more and or less than what wound up happening. Yeah, there's like a second draft of this movie that's killer. Yeah, I think that's completely right. A little bit more Claire Danes. I would have gone a little harder on her. I kept thinking she was going to turn up at the dinner because she was going to leave the boyfriend's house. I mean, that's a long flight to last minute get. You know, I do want to say there is one Leo Fish moment that I do actually appreciate, which is that he finds the way to subtly walk Aunt Gladdy into her home when she has refused help by asking if he could use her bathroom. And that was a legitimate good guy moment. The rest of it, bullshit. But I got to give him that one thing. 
that's exactly what I'm saying. Everybody gets their one moment of real truth here. And that was it because he turns back and he looks at Holly Hunter and he says, you should meet my Aunt Harriet. And it's like, that's the only piece of characterization that we get for that man is that he also has a crazy old aunt, right? And he knows and cares about that lady. And so he can extrapolate to this experience. Yeah, completely agree. It was, it's I pulled that moment too. So while this movie does end on Dylan McDermott on the plane, I think it should end closer to Charles Durning giving that beautiful monologue in the basement. That's really the heart of this. And as you said, it's not the best written thing in this film, but God damn it, does Charles Durning kill the delivery. Kill it. It is a all-time actor moment. I wish Foster hadn't pushed in because I thought it was like really nice as a medium shot and I thought it got a little too close in on his face. But just a tremendous piece of acting from a tremendous actor and also just like a nice moment to see a father really proud of his daughter for just being a person. And like, that was really nice. I I liked so much of that. And I think that is a better tie-in of this movie's idea that people are either constructing walls for themselves or breaking through those walls. And Mm -hmm. he gets to tie it in of like, you were always so brave. Yeah. Like she doesn't need to prove that she's a risk taker because she's going on a date with some asshole. Like she can just have her father who knows her better than anyone because he's known her her whole life acknowledge this like innate quality that she can feel good about. Yeah. And to acknowledge that like right now isn't her best day, but like she's made of stronger stuff. And in fact, I thought that monologue was to encourage her not to just like settle for some random man who came by, but to like go live her life and be brave and set her sights higher. So when that man trapped her for several hours on a plane, I I like your version of this, actually, that Claire Danes comes to dinner and then she and Claire Danes can get on the plane together and sort of fly off into this brave new future. Like, that's a way better ending. Claire Danes stabs Dylan McDermott and then does go to jail, but it's all worth it. It's fine. Oh, I feel like in the revision, Dylan McDermott is just not there. We just don't need that character. I see. I see. <laughs> so... Having written our own ending for the movie, it sounds like we're ready for final thoughts. Bree, <laughs> what'd you think of Home for the Holidays? Like I said, this one was at about 60% for me. I enjoyed parts of it. I think without the romantic subplot, I actually really would have enjoyed it. Like, I think it's interesting enough to just have Tommy come home alone and to have Clyde wonder what's going on and to have Joanne be embarrassed that her brother has gotten gay married. I, you know, I think most of the performances were really spectacular. I thought that the writing at times was a little twee, or just like too many of the scenarios were a little twee piled on top of each other. But like a Thanksgiving dinner, I picked and choosed what I wanted to eat. And there were parts of it that I really did enjoy. How about you? Oh, that was an excellent metaphor. (laughs) Thank you. We're on Twitter at Replaying Phase. We're on... Um, For my part, I think I will watch this again. This is a debacle in a lot of ways. It doesn't all fit together perfectly, but I think there is sort of an underlying truth to the chaos and sadness and closeness and weirdness of Thanksgiving that emerges 
from all of the nonsense. And I love so many of the performances so much that I will come back to it, even if this doesn't necessarily add up to a satisfying whole. I will gladly rewatch it and re-forget that Dylan McDermott is in it. I just want to say before we close, to Dylan McDermott, because we do know that you're listening, <laughs> there's nothing wrong that you did in terms of like the acting. It's just that the character did so many wrong things that I do wish that he had been buried in the front yard. It was an unwinnable game that he was playing. You're right. But it was early in his career. This is before the practice, so I can't fault him for taking the role. Great way to let everyone know that you've got a great head of hair and some beautiful blue eyes. All right. Well, on that note, please take me away from that thing that I just said and tell me what we're watching next. It's funny that you mention a good head of hair and piercing eyes because we are going to watch the classic Thanksgiving movie, The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) Oh, I forgot how much they love Thanksgiving in space. (laughs) Well, there was a really horrible Christmas special, but we're not watching that. We are going to watch the middle part of the original Star Wars trilogy because, and I can't believe I'm saying this out loud on your behalf, you haven't maybe seen ever The Empire Strikes Back? I would like to correct that. When I was, I want to say, eight years old, my father won tickets on a radio show to all three of the Star Wars films, there were only three at the time, shown back to back. Okay. So- I sat in a theater with my brother for what must have been like nine hours to watch all three films at once. So I have a general overarching idea of what's going on. But like, oh boy, is that all scrambled in my brain and half of it seeped out. <laughs> Chimney Christmas. All right. Well, this is going to be fun for you. I, I, I will... Shit, let's run out of this one and we'll go talk about this in the intro because I have so many thoughts. We will see you in two weeks. Bye. It is Dylan McDermott, right? I definitely called him Dylan McPractice at one point. <laughs> I don't-